Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. This week's event happened in 1939. But what else happened in that year? Well, on January the 5th, pioneering US aviator Amelia Earhart is officially declared dead 18 months after her disappearance. On February the 15th, John Ford's film Stagecoach, starring John Wayne, premieres in New York City and Los Angeles. On March the 3rd, Students at Harvard University demonstrate the new tradition of swallowing goldfish to reporters. On May the 1st, Batman, created by Bill Finger and Bob Kane, makes his first appearance in Detective Comics number 27. On June the 4th, the St. Louis, a ship carrying a cargo of 907 Jewish refugees, is denied permission to land in Florida, after already having been turned away from Cuba. Forced to return to Europe, Many of its passengers later die in Nazi death camps during the Holocaust. On September 3rd, the United Kingdom, France, New Zealand, Australia and India declare war on Nazi Germany. But our event happened on September 17th. HMS Courageous was the lead ship of the Courageous-class cruisers built for the Royal Navy during the First World War. Designed to support the Baltic project championed by First Sea Lord John Fisher, the ship was very lightly armoured and armed with only a few heavy guns. Courageous served with the home fleet at the start of World War II, with 811 and 812 squadrons aboard. Each squadron equipped with a dozen fairy swordfish, a medium-sized biplane torpedo bomber and reconnaissance aircraft. The swordfish employed a metal frame covered in fabric, It utilised folding wings as a space-saving measure, which was useful on board aircraft carriers and battleships. In the early days of the war, hunter-killer groups were formed around the fleet's aircraft carriers to find and destroy U-boats. On 31st of August 1939, HMS Courageous went to her war station at Portland, Dorset and embarked the two squadrons of swordfish. HMS Courageous departed Plymouth on the evening of the 3rd of September 1939 for an anti-submarine patrol in the Western Approaches, escorted by four destroyers. 
on the evening of the 17th of September, she was on one such patrol off the coast of Ireland. Two of her four escorting destroyers had been sent to help a merchant ship under attack, and all her aircraft had returned from patrols, oblivious to German U-boat U-29, which had been stalking her from the depths. In fact, she'd been stalked for over two hours by the U-boat commanded by Captain Lieutenant Otto Schuhart. Word of the Week And for this week's Word of the Week, I give you... Blighty One. Now, most of us know that Blighty is a World War II term for England or home, and it originates from the Hindustani word biliate, which means foreign land. But Blighty One means a wound serious enough to require the recipient to be sent home to England. The German equivalent of this word at the time was Heimschusch, and the Australian troops in Gallipoli referred to the same as an Aussie. When HMS Courageous realised that it was being stalked by a U-boat, it turned into the wind to launch her aircraft. This put the ship right across the bow of the submarine, which fired three torpedoes. Two of the torpedoes struck the ship from her port side before an aircraft could take off, knocking out all electrical power, and she capsized and sank in 20 minutes with the loss of 519 of her crew, including her captain, who was last seen on the bridge issuing the abandoned ship order. The men on board behaved cheerfully and actually sang and cheered whilst they were swimming about in the water. Another survivor said that the lights went out when the courageous was struck and crockery fell about as the ship listed, but everybody was quite orderly and some of the sailors cracked jokes as they swam about, waiting to be picked up. The sailors were rescued by the Dutch ocean liner Bean Dam and the British freighter Collingworth. The two escorting destroyers counter-attacked U-29 for four hours, but the submarine escaped. An earlier unsuccessful attack on Ark Royal by U-39 on the 14th of September, followed by the sinking of Courageous three days later, prompted the Royal Navy to withdraw carriers from anti-submarine patrols. HMS Courageous was the first British warship to be sunk by German forces. The submarine Oxley had been sunk a week earlier by friendly fire from the British submarine Triton. The commander of the German submarine force, Commodore Karl Donitz, regarded the sinking of Courageous as a wonderful success and it led to widespread jubilation in the Kriegsmarine, or German Navy. Grand Admiral Erich Rieder, commander of the Kriegsmarine, directed that Captain Lieutenant Otto Schuhart, commander of U-39, be awarded the Iron Cross first class and that all other members of the crew receive the Iron Cross second class. One of the survivors of the sinking was Thomas Horace Hawksworth. He was doing his 12 years in the Royal Marines and serving on HMS Courageous when it sank just two weeks into World War II. 
He was one of the survivors and was picked up by a Dutch boat. He then went on to be captured in Crete and wrote a log of his wartime years. One of his anecdotes in the log, he said, he apparently looked around for somewhere to put his folded uniform before jumping into the water and swam for his life. Life in the services taught them to be tidy. In his recollections, he says, September 3rd, 1939. I'd been serving in HMS Courageous for nearly 12 months when the momentous news was announced about 11.15am over the ship's broadcaster by Captain Mackay Jones that war had been declared. Conscious that something important had happened in our lives, many of us greeted this news with cheers, which quickly gave place to sober thought. The general attitude towards the news was that it shouldn't make a great deal of difference to us, or being long-service men, since we would only be doing the job we had always been doing, with an added spice of danger. On the whole, though, I think I was rather glad that at last something was happening in a rather dull world. We were already at sea when the news was given out, and our aircraft were soon up on patrol for enemy subs. Several times our escorting destroyers raced away to make a pattern of depth charges. Whether any were sunk, I don't know, though of course most of the ship's company laid claim to seeing at least one come up with its back broken. After putting into Plymouth for oil and more provisions, we were soon out again on some errand hunting submarines. This time, instead of us getting a submarine, it was a case of the biter being bitten. For on September the 17th, 1939, at approximately 20 hundred hours, we were struck by at least two torpedoes in the bomb room, portside forward. With half her bottom ripped out, it was obvious to everyone that she was going, and by 20-25 hours there was only the bobbing heads of survivors, oil and flotsam, to show that there had ever been a ship there. I well remember how at the first explosion my resentment arose that the ship I was in should be hit quickly giving place to the realisation of my position between decks. The struggle to gain the upper deck in the dark, for of course the lights went out on the torpedo striking. The white, tense faces, some almost unrecognisable with their present expressions. The ridiculous manner in which I looked around for a place to put my clothes as I stripped prior to taking the water. Swimming. Cursing the commander of Impulsive for changing his position, causing me to swim several more hundreds of yards. The feel of the deck of the impulsive after the insecurity of the sea. Grog, and plenty of it. Thanking God as I stepped over the guardrails. Not, I think, because I am religious. But simply because I was thankful. My dive off the lockers when a loose block banged the ship's side. As happy as a skylark through being saved joy in seeing Plymouth again, surprise of marine barracks, leave, bath, sleep, how people I never even knew congratulated me for saving my life, my sorrow at a long list of missing. Book of the Week. If you're like me and you like hearing the real-life stories behind major events, then you'll love this book, HMS Courageous 1939, 
Eyewitness World War II series by Leonard James. I'll admit, before starting this particular story, I didn't know anything about it. But then, once I got into it, I was really intrigued by the whole story. And this e-book contains eyewitness accounts of the sinking of the British aircraft carrier in the first month of the war, complete with explanatory text and background on the men and machines involved. It's part of the Eyewitness World War II series and is a growing collection of e-books that contain original eyewitness accounts and contemporary newspaper reports of various events from the war. Joe Clark was only 19 at the time Courageous was sunk and he was a radio operator on board. He was on watch at the time of the sinking and was in charge of putting out the May Day. He did this and then, in his own words, got the hell off it. Once hit, all the electrics on board failed and as the ship listed, the backup battery spilled its acid all over the floor so they had no means of sending out a mayday. At this point, they were told to abandon their posts. He also mentioned the fact that once they removed their clothes, they folded them neatly and placed them in little piles. He says he and three other men stood there and removed all their clothes apart from their underwear. Then they shared a cigarette before jumping. Years later, he recalled a poignant tale about this moment. Obviously, military men have a superstition about smoking. Three strikes and you're out. Well, one of the four men was very superstitious and declined the offer to smoke. Joe said that he wasn't bothered and offered to take the third strike. But sadly, of the four of them, the man who declined the cigarette died. And even more ironically, his job as a civilian had been as a lifeguard. Some 681 ratings and officers did survive the ordeal. Mrs Hubert Haslam of Union Place, Plymouth, whose Marine husband was among the survivors, told her story at the time. My husband was a wine steward and wardroom attendant. The officers were dining when the explosion shook the ship. Everyone went on deck, but he said there was no sign of panic. The aircraftmen had just landed their planes and he saw none of them. He thinks they went down with the ship. He jumped overboard with an officer and was swimming about for about an hour and a half. Then he found a plank to cling to and there he stayed with several other men until he was taken aboard as destroyer. He and all the survivors were given hot pots of rum, issued with blankets and brought back. Mr Haslam had been a milkman with the Plymouth Cooperative Society, having served for 12 years before he was recalled that year. According to his wife's account... He had been meaning to buy a lifeboat but hadn't made a potentially life-saving purchase before Courageous set off. Luckily, he was a strong swimmer or he might never have made it. In local news today, a man knocked on my door and asked for a small donation towards the local swimming pool. So, I gave him a glass of water. Mr A.D. Stevens' father was on HMS Courageous, and here are his words about the occasion. My father was on HMS Courageous. His name is William George Stevens. 
I was a few months old. He visited me at my foster home, and with him was the ship's mascot, a German shepherd dog. He was panting. I quickly gave the dog a dish of water. It was so heavy, my father William gave me a hand. My father promised me that on his return he was going to bring a big tin of sweets home on his next leave. My father then returned to his ship, soon to be blown up and sunk. The Germans picked up my father and a few others and sent them to a concentration camp. Two years after the war ended, my father was found in a second secret experimental camp when clearing out the experimental camps. My father was left to rot with only half of brain, no arms or legs, which left me with a mother in a mental institution. I was completely alone. An incredible story of the time was about a Union Castle liner which escaped the vigilance of the U-boats on her voyage from Cape Town, reaching port camouflaged in the old mufti-coloured style. She had left port shortly before war was declared, and her 110 passengers, including the women, all got busy helping the crew to darken the portholes and paint the ship. The paint stored on board was of all colours, and so the camouflage was planned on the 1914 model. Passengers leaned out of portholes to reach as far as possible along the hull. Others had long-handled brushes, and so the work went on while the liner steadily ploughed her way home. Women passengers, besides taking their part in painting, formed themselves into sewing parties to make sandbags, and other passengers reinforced the ship's lookout, with men keeping an alert eye for U-boats. My whole journey into the story of HMS Courageous began when I had one of my socially distanced weekend walks at a local cemetery called Avonview in Bristol. And I came across the grave of Samuel Thomas Dark, petty officer with the Royal Navy. He was aged 46 at the time and the son of Thomas and Elizabeth Dark. He was the husband to Esther Elizabeth Dark. And in the Bristol Evening Post of Saturday the 23rd of September 1939, under the column In Memoriam, there was a message Fondest Remembrance of Sam, of HMS Courageous. He gave all, from his loving sister Elsie, chum Jack and Auntie Polly. I then set about finding out how many other Bristol men perished on that fateful day. Here's a list of the ones I could find. Leonard Brown, Mechanician, Royal Navy. Son of Joseph and Sarah Ellen Brown of Bristol, Gloss. Husband of the late Ruth and father to Raymond and Billy. William John Brown, Petty Officer Stoker. Royal Navy, son of John and Mary Brown, husband of Florence Beatrice Brown of Bristol. William Ernest Chamberlain, Chief Stoker, Royal Navy. Son of William Henry and Millicent Chamberlain. Of Bristol, husband of Alice Chamberlain of Horfield, Bristol. Harry Clay, electrical artificer, fourth class, Royal Navy, son of Harry and Amy Clay of Westbeyond Trim, Bristol. William Robert Hitchings, petty officer, Stoker, 
Royal Navy, son of Robert William and Elizabeth Hitchings of Bristol, husband of May Hitchings of Bristol. William Kenneth King, boy first class, Royal Navy, son of William Henry and Ethel May King, and brother to Valma of Bristol. Thomas William Rogerson, able seaman, Royal Navy, son of Harry J and Ellen Rogerson, husband of Adeline F. M. Rogerson of Bristol. John Henry Purnell, steward, Royal Navy, son of George and Beatrice Sophia Purnell of Bristol. murdered my dad's friend in 1974 while on his reign of terror in Utah. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode on Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained, spine-tingling supernatural stories historical mysteries, and true crime cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. We discuss the impossible murder of Julia Wallace, share terrifying true stories from our listeners about sleep paralysis, and explore Cleopatra's lost tomb. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas, Our bite-sized, bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries. Sacred and sonic geometry, the mistress of Murder Farm, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the horror film The Omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. Back in the day facts. And now let's start off with the 27th of March for our Back in the Day facts, when in 1871 Scotland defeated England by one try in the first ever international rugby match. On the 28th of March in 1881, US showman P.T. Barnum joined with his rival James A. Bailey to found the famous Barnum and Bailey Circus, promoted as the greatest show on earth. Also on the 28th of March, but in 1917 in World War I, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps was founded. On the 29th of March in 1912, Captain Robert Scott wrote his last diary entry before dying on his return voyage from the South Pole. He says, We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker. Of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. On the 30th of March, 1867, the USA purchased Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million, two cents an acre. And lastly, on the 31st of March... In 1889, the construction of the Eiffel Tower in Paris was completed. It stood at 312 metres high, including the flagpole at the top. And now, my friends, we've come to the end of this particular episode. 
and a huge thank you to everyone who helped by lending their voices to bring the whole story to life. Amongst them, there's Marcus K.P., Catherine Ayres, Henry Arnold and Carrie Cleave from Bradley State Radio, as well as Joe Wilson, Sam Vernon, Carrie Ball, Patrick Allen and Steve Roberts from St. Stephen's Drama Group, and not forgetting Sarah Reed from St. George, as well as Griff from the Paul and Griff podcast. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background... That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.